Tanya Fitzpatrick. And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick, and this is World Footprints. You need to go right now. You need to leave now. Don't shower. Don't eat. Get out now. When we were getting this message, I started thinking, what does he know? Like, what? why? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, Ian's got toast in his pocket. I've got clothes hanging out on my back. Cause it, I mean, and we actually ran out of the hotel and we didn't know why he said you get to the camp you don't stop the car and that stretch to get back to that original camp we had a knife under the steering wheel traffic jams were a problem i mean i i'm about as opposite of indian looking as you can get and so you know i'm I'm like doing this in the car because the glares that were once very curious stares at us were now looks of disdain and pure anger What was supposed to be a four-week fishing trip to Nepal and India for veteran journalist Anitra Hamper turned out to be an absolute nightmare for her and a trusted colleague of Anitra's, Ian Henderson of The Greatest Fish. In March 2020, Anitra and Ian set out in search of a very rare fish called the gunch. Instead of catching the gunch, they themselves got caught up in the coronavirus pandemic and barely escaped the country with their lives intact. Here's Anitra who describes the harrowing ordeal. Well, it's definitely a fish with a lot of folklore. It's called the gunch catfish g-o-o-n-c-h so you'll have to to look it up and um you know my niche in outdoor writing is extreme fishing and outdoor adventure so i've been uh, writing for a lot of fishing publications and so i had two assignments on the goonch and um my colleague ian henderson from the united kingdom takes anglers to india um, has for the last 10 years to fish for not only the goonch but another fish called the golden masseer and these two fish and in the two locations where you find them in northern india are the places in the world to go so if you're an avid angler and you are someone who you know loves the idea of traveling off the grid to go and see these unique species it's all catch and release and and part of what my philosophy is and ian's as well is um to educate the locals about you know why we shouldn't poach these and and to get anglers like me up close and personal so um people who don't even fish for catfish can go wow something like that actually exists in our world and um and and it's a platform to talk about why to preserve these natural resources so we set out to do that and spent months preparing for that ian and i met up in nepal just to connect for um, a few days and at the time actually two days before the trip we talked about canceling um, despite the money and and effort we'd already invested and uh, that was because COVID-19 was just being um, discussed. Well, we we actually had a a case or two here in the United States. If you remember the first cases in Seattle, you know, it was already uh, prolific in China, but it it hadn't hit the vocabulary really of Nepal and India. Now they were taking precautions, but very simple things like temperature checks at the airport. So it wasn't a thing. Um, And when Ian and I were driving around in Nepal originally, before we crossed the land border to India, they're up in villages with no electricity. They would point at us and go, Corona, Corona, and hello. And uh, you, you two are well-traveled, so you know that a lot of times in, in small villages, they like to practice their English on, on people that come through. And, but their tone was very lighthearted, and we thought it was kind of funny, but we didn't have any idea why they were saying that. Well, 
Mm. We crossed into India and um, people were still pointing and Corona and we thought, well, this is strange. But what we didn't know for about a week and three days is that the government had been telling people that India is too hot for the virus to exist. It cannot come here mm-hmm. unless foreigners bring it. And so we didn't know that that, that um, dialogue was being distributed to the citizens. When we got to India, things were fine. We went to a fishing camp, the one that we ended up going back to. It was in one location, and that's where Ian was to take clients at after I left for May and June for the Golden Masseur. So we stopped through that camp to check things out. We did some fishing. It was great. And we thought, well, this is this is a good start. And then part two of the trip was to travel nine hours to another region in northern India to an area called Marchula, which that was going to be our base where we'd meet up with a guide. And then we'd go off the grid for eight days, so another few hours down into this valley of the West Ramganga River to do the assignments, to fish for the gooch. And it was when we arrived in that city, it was like all of a sudden, the hotel we went to stay in, they slammed the gates uh, on us and they said, no foreigner. Mm-hmm. And it was just that abrupt. It was like one day that happened. And we thought, well, that why? No foreigner. And they go away, go away. So we thought, well, that's strange. And progressively, things mm-hmm. started closing like the Taj Mahal. But it was all sort of under the idea of a precaution, right? Uh, the government was, was closing those things. So I thought, well, in the back end of my trip, I was going to go see the Taj Mahal. So now I've just added some days. So it was in this town that was really the start of a five-day stretch of, of really fearful on the run. So it started with that first hotel closing the gates in our face. We found an, another cheap hotel that would take us. The next day, we got a different hotel. We showed up and they said, they stopped us. No foreigner, no foreigner, you health check. Still, at this point, people are still being told that it's too hot in Indiana. And I've been to India and I know it's hotter than Hades. And so they were still being told it's too hot, yet the virus was spreading. And even in the rural communities, people were being told not to allow foreigners in, that foreigners responsible for bringing the virus through the, the borders. Right. And at this point, it hadn't really unleashed there because they weren't testing. So nobody really had it yet. They weren't testing for it, but they were taking precautions. And of course, they were hearing about other countries that had it. And yes, so that messaging was still the same. And so this is really in this town in this five days was really the big turning point where all of a sudden massive things started getting shut down, like the transportation system and um, hotels were eventually shut down. And we had um, were to, we were escorted to this hospital, sort of open air hospital to be screened for COVID-19. Now it, we know because we we have the information that that you could be asymptomatic for weeks. But to them, if you take my temperature and ask me five questions and give me a piece of paper that says you don't have it, it's all very surface um, knowledge that they went by. So we got this health paper um, in this really dirty hotel, that, or uh, I'm sorry, a hospital. Um, these bloody gurneys were laying in the in the open air area. I didn't want to touch anything. I thought, my God, I'm going to get it here. This is a copy of the newspaper. This picture right here 
in this town, it was the very next day, is my colleague and I on the front page of the Ramnagar newspaper showcasing how the government is rounding up the foreigners and we you know we're protecting our citizens, we're screening them, you're okay. So what happened next in this town, I ended up getting some food poisoning, which was awful, but it actually ended up being a, a huge blessing in disguise for us because when I got it, Ian told me, what we're about to do is so strenuous and extreme. You cannot physically do it. He said, you have to get better. So I had time to burn on the end of the trip. You've been listening to the award-winning World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. World Footprints is making a social impact and connecting you to the world through powerful storytelling that uncovers the full narrative of our cultural and human experiences. Make a difference and travel deeper by visiting our website, worldfootprints.com. And make sure you sign up for our newsletter and receive a special gift we have just for subscribers. This is World Footprints, and you're listening to veteran journalist Anitra Hamper as she describes her terrifying experiences while on assignment in India back in March. Let's hear more from Anitra. At the time, we had a team of local guys setting up our camp hours away and in this valley. I mean, it's very off the grid. So I got the food poisoning. I, um, I rested for a day. During that day is when Ian went out to get me some things and the pharmacies shut their doors in his face and people were turning him away. And that same day, our local guide called us and said, we have a problem at the river. Our guys have been hassled by the local villagers and authorities telling them they know foreigners are coming and to get out. And so despite the permits we spent hundreds of dollars to get and all the proper precautions and you know hiring locals, to do um, the work with us, you know, we're giving back and they didn't care. They, they didn't want us there. So we had to make the tough decision at that point because they were very upset and disrupted the camp. They told them to go. And we thought, wow, this is escalating really scarily fast, right? So we sat and deliberated. What do we do? I have a list of pros and cons from that night. Mm-hmm. That night, the prime minister went on TV and shut down the train system and hotels were going to close. Our hotel closed the very next morning. And we said, this is getting really dangerous at this point. At that point, our guy from the original place, nine hours away, the original camp, said, you better get back here. While this was happening, the prime minister said, all flights out of the country will close, will be done. We won't do any more in two days. At the same time, the United States was saying, hey, Americans, anybody out of the country, you better get back or you're on your own. So I tried. I looked, there was one flight. There's no way I could get it from from the location I was. There's no way that I could physically get to where I needed to be in two days to catch it. So you were in the north of the country and where would you fly in and out of New Delhi? Yes, in Delhi. So we were from that location. I don't know how far we were from Delhi at that point. I don't remember, but the original camp that we went back to, we ended up being 14 hours away. So our guy said, listen, come back. You, you stay here. You hide out here. You'll be fine. So every day that went by, everything escalated by a lot. More severe, more targeted, more um, just, just very deliberate targeting of us. And so we took two days to get back there. That was a, a nine-hour trip, but, but nine hours on mountain roads that barely exist, you know, and you might be stopped for two hours while they do something on the road. And so we'd stopped at a hotel we'd been at before, halfway back. We said, we'll stop here. We're going to go get some supplies, like 
a sanitizer, whatever, because now we know we're going to head to this other camp and just we're going to hunker down there. And we felt safe doing that. This is World Footprints, and you're listening to veteran journalist Anitra Hamper as she describes her terrifying experiences while on assignment in India back in March. Let's hear more from Anitra. We stopped at this hotel coming back. A guy that we knew and we said okay we trust this guy he'll and he'll take us out to get supplies and he he allowed us into the hotel but what we didn't know is that he was also calling the authorities on us when we arrived i went to my room while ian and the owner were going to go get supplies but the man kept stalling ian in the lobby and, and i was completely unaware of all of this until ian got back and he said you're not going to believe what happened and his face was pale and i'm like what the guy had called authorities reporting us that we were there. You know, we weren't doing anything wrong. We're just foreigners. And this ambulance shows up with six medical workers and they get out. They completely ambushed him, surprised him. The, the owner just kept stalling him. He said, just wait a minute, wait a minute. We'll go soon. We'll go soon. So these all these medical workers rushed out in the full gear, their stethoscopes, their thermometers, their cameras. I mean, just came at him, all of them caused a big scene of course you know india's so condensed and everybody in the streets watching this um, through the glass windows of the hotel so that was that night and and again it was like turning up a dial you know we're turning up the heat on the shower where, where it is very evident that the earth is actively shifting right now it is not good it started to get very scary and i had been on the phone to my mother at this point while i still had communication and um, ian's pounding on my door telling me what just happened i said i got i gotta go mom i gotta go we spent the night we said tomorrow morning we're going to get up and go early and before we even left in that morning our guy the man who ended up protecting us called in and said you need to go right now you need to leave now don't shower don't eat get out now when we were getting this message i started thinking what does he know like what why <laughs> Yeah. Uh, you know, Ian's got toast in his pocket. I've got clothes hanging out on my back. Cause, I mean, and we actually ran out of the hotel and we didn't know why. He said, you get to the camp, you don't stop the car. And that stretch to get back to that original camp, we had a knife under the steering wheel. Traffic jams were a problem. I mean, I, I'm about as opposite of Indian looking as you can get. And so, you know, I'm, I'm like doing this in the car because the glares that were once very curious stares at us were now looks of disdain and pure anger. The kind of feeling that you get when someone looks at you and you can physically feel it down to your stomach. Yeah. Like, in fact, uh, they, they, people were throwing rocks at your car, I understand. Yeah, this was the stretch that they were throwing the rocks because we had a long drive to get back. And so stopping was a problem. We didn't drink a lot of water, so we didn't have to go to the bathroom. We just tried to be as discreet as possible. And we, we finally got back to the camp. So when we got there, I thought, oh, okay, I'm safe, I'm safe. I mean, we were safe. Our guy kind of fended off authorities um, on our way. Just before we got there, he said, you, you stop in the village. The village is two hours away from the camp. So the camp that we stayed in, it's on the border with Nepal. So the Mahakali River, river is there. Nepal's on the other side. India's on this side. And there are rice or wheat terraces. So the camp makes up one 
stretch of one terrace. So above us, women, you know, they're picking the wheat with the 50 pound bushels on their heads and below us is the river. So we're very hidden in these terraces on our way back. He says, stop through the village. You're going to meet up with a guy named so-and-so one name. It was like something out of a movie. He'd only give us the guy's first name. I don't know how we found his stall, but he said, this guy is going to throw rice and wheat in your car. You do not stop. You don't get out. And it was like that. I mean, we drove up to this guy's stall. We asked for this guy by one name. He threw these 50 pound bags in our car and off we went. So we got to the camp and I felt safe because I thought we're safe here. We're protected by a local who just ended up being our guardian angel. You know, I mean, he stood up to his own people. He was at risk for even associating with us. He hit us there pretending like we were just guests that kind of got stuck there, even though he was our friend. Mm-hmm. And um, the authorities came to visit, I don't know, a- every couple days because they didn't trust us. I mean, we were a threat to them. We were in their home. We were, I think it was two or three days after we got back to the camp, the whole country shut down and they're still on lockdown. Uh, what is it? I think at least until June 30th. So I could have still been there. Dear, what an incredible story we've heard so far from Anitra. Incredible is an understatement, you know, as she was telling it, and I know that there's much more to come, but it caused my heart to beat. You know, I was afraid for her. I mean, we know that she's okay because she's talking to us, but I was really afraid for her uh, during, you know, her stories and visualizing her and Ian trying to escape the country, trying to find a way home, being really caught in the middle of nowhere and really leaning on people to help them. You know, they were alone. Yeah, and thankfully they had some good people there in India to help them and at home, particularly with Anitra's mom, who uh, called in uh, the troops, so to speak. I couldn't get any kind of internet or email, but I could send some WhatsApp messages like if it, you know, eventually would send to my mother, who was basically my my lifeline. I said, look, once things really started getting scary, I said, I need one person to know what's really going on. I'm afraid of getting hauled away. I'm afraid of getting, I mean, we've already been escorted off and we had heard about a group of French tourists that were taken away somewhere. I mean, where? I don't know. To this day, was it quarantine? Were they arrested? Where? I had been telling her these things I said you someone needs to know and so when you got to the river and I could do a few messages I said you're the only one I have time to reach out to I mean I need you to contact this person this I need you to try and get the embassy I can't contact anybody stay tuned to world footprints as we bring you episode two of escape from India featuring Anitra Hamper we're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick and we are honored that you chose to spend this time with us and that you've allowed us to offer meaningful connections through the stories we share on World Footprints. This World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints LLC, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award winning podcast is available on worldfootprints.com and on audio platforms worldwide, including iHeartRadio, Public Radio Exchange, iTunes, and Stitcher. Connect with the world one story at a time with World Footprints. Visit worldfootprints.com to enjoy more podcasts and explore hundreds of articles from international travel writers. And be sure to subscribe to the newsletter. 
World Footprints is a trademark of World Footprints LLC, which retains all rights to the World Footprints portfolio, including worldfootprints.com and this podcast.